Thank you for listening to the Competition Committee podcast. Check out new podcasts every Thursday. If you know, you know. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Competition Committee podcast. For those who are listening for the first time, we are a sports podcast where we find ways to make our favorite sports more fun for the fans. I'm your host, Parker, alongside with JJ. And in today's episode, we'll talk about the new MLB rule changes and how they're impacting the game as we head into the All-Star break. We'll play one of our favorite games called Highly Leveraged, True or False. We'll talk about a proposed change to the Tour de France. And of course, we'll read off some emails to finish off the show. We have a few guests sprinkled in today's episode, but we start with David. How are you doing tonight, sir? I'm doing well, gentlemen. Thanks for having me back. I always look forward to this, and um, I'm looking forward to this evening. It is going to be a good one. And before we get started, I did want to briefly mention, I believe Mr. Adam Silver might be listening to our podcast because it was just announced a few days ago that the NBA is instituting an in-season tournament that will start in November, which is something that we had talked about in previous episodes, November being one of the more boring months of the season. It'll start November 3rd and finish November 9th. It will begin with some group stage play. We'll play a round robin with different teams, and then it'll head into the knockout rounds where they'll eventually name a champion November 9th. So, I thought that was interesting. Highly unlikely that Mr. Adam Silver listened to our podcast. Well, Parker, he might have read the letter you sent where we proposed the uh, NBA November challenge, and he realized that he had to do something. I guess there's a couple things about this tournament that I think are interesting. At first, you would think that that the players won't be interested in it at all. But the winners do play in Las Vegas. Mm. So it will be kind of a big deal. And each player on the team that wins the tournament gets $1.5 million. That's not pocket change. That's really something. Especially not in Las Vegas. They'll definitely put that to good (laughs) use. Let's dig into how these new MLB rule changes that they instituted this year. Let's see how they impact the game. And I wanted to do a brief shout out to the new Cincinnati Reds all-star should have been an all-star all-star in my head, Ellie De La Cruz, who for those who don't know, I live here in Chattanooga and he was, he is in the Cincinnati Reds organization and he played with the Chattanooga lookouts last year. And he was just as electric as he is in the MLB as he is, uh, as he was last year in with the lookouts He, just a few days ago, stole second base, third base, and home while he was on base. It was absolutely insane. This really is something to see. We linked a video in the show notes where you can see him steal all three bases. And it is something to see how the pitcher and the catcher are so flummoxed by him. His stealing stealing home was just something to see. One of the golf podcasts I listened to who are Cincinnati Reds fans, they had talked about that and I'd kind of seen it on Instagram or whatnot. And, you know, I thought it was cool. And then they, they kind of talked about it, how awesome it was the most exciting play they had seen in baseball in a very long time. So I went back and watched it and 
I would agree. It's, it's, it's something to see. So if you should click on that link and just prepare to be amazed. We can talk about L.A. De La Cruz for a long time, but this guy is so tall and lanky. He, he just takes four or five steps and he's on to the next base. And it's crazy how quick, I mean, the coaches have had to tell him that he needs to slide way quicker because he's so fast that when he slides, he almost slides off the bag. Anyways, he's just, he's a sight to see. He's a freak. He is making Cincinnati Reds baseball exciting. Well, let's take a look at what's happened so far this year. I guess we are really close to the halfway point. In fact, the average team has now played 90 games. And of course, there's 162 games total. Let me give you a few statistics. I guess the big one that everybody talks about is the length of the game. And that, of course, is a result of the new pitch clock rule. Last year in 2022, the average length of a game was 186 minutes, three hours and six minutes. This year, it's only 160 minutes. That's a 26-minute savings. That is a big change. And, And real quick to touch on that, I just recently went to a game down there in Tampa And I haven't been to a game in a while, so I think my brain was still used to the old way of it taking forever. It was incredibly fast, like almost where you couldn't even keep up, which is crazy to say at a baseball game. It seems way quicker than almost 30 minutes quicker in a a game. Like the, the pitches were going, if you weren't fully locked into the game, I mean, you could completely miss an inning if you're not paying attention. It is so much quicker. I think what they did was they just took, they didn't take good parts out of the game. They just took, they took 26 minutes of things we don't care about out of the game. So it was really smart. And that's the key to, as I bring up every time, it's an entertainment product. And the more that you can keep people engaged, if people are having to try to find a time to go use the restroom if they are watching the game, you know, on TV or in person for that matter. Like that is something that everyone, every league needs to keep in mind that the more you can keep people engaged, the better the product is going to be. Let's look at a few more numbers. These didn't change as much as I expected. The average runs per team per game last year was 4.28. This year, it's 4.58. That seems like almost no increase at all until you realize that it's actually a 7% increase, so it's not nothing. The average hits per game went up just a little bit. It went up from 8.16 hits per game to 8.36 hits per game. The number of singles went up slightly. The number of doubles went up slightly. The number of triples went up slightly. But here's a surprise. We thought the elimination of the shift was going to have more players focusing on hitting in stadium balls and not trying to hit home runs. But actually, the home runs are up this year. Last year, there was 1.07 home runs per game. And this year, there's 1.16. That's up 8%. It's significant. And the number of strikeouts, which we thought might go down because people are trying to put the ball in play, it has also gone up. Last year, it was 8.4 strikeouts per game per team. 
and this year it's 8.53, so it went up 2%. So we did not see that decrease we hope to see in the strikeouts. Do you think that has something to do with the pitch clock, though? You know, perhaps the pitcher gets more into a groove, and with this new pitch clock, it's throwing the timing off the, the hitter, perhaps? Well, I think it's all kind of tied together. I mean, both all the batter and the pitcher are still, I mean, they have to be, you know, focused for that time in the pitch clock. So both of them are, might be rushed, might feel, you know, the pressure to hit, might feel the pressure to pitch a little better. But I mean, if you do anything faster, it's kind of, it's, it's going to increase anything that you do, you know, mistakes that you make in both sides of the game. I would have guessed that having to pitch faster is more impactful than having to hit faster. But something's something didn't change that we thought would change, and I'm not sure what it is. You know, a 2% difference, and it's slightly more, it's essentially the same, essentially unchanged. Steals, that's where we really expected to see the change, and that's where we did see the change. So last year, there were 0.68 steal attempts per game per team. This year, there's 0.91. When you say the numbers that way, they don't seem that different. But actually, that's a 34% increase in the number of steal attempts. The number of stolen bases has gone up 41%. But the success rate of steals, which we thought was going to go way up, only changed a little bit. Last year, the success rate of steals was 75%. This year, it's 79%. So it's only slightly improved. So it doesn't make sense that we're seeing more steals because they're significantly more successful. I'm not sure why we're seeing more steals. Because they know that the bases are bigger and that they feel like they have a better chance to get the stolen base? I mean, that would be the most obvious answer. Maybe, but analytics would say, you know, only a 5% increase in success rate shouldn't shouldn't result in a 34% increase in attempts. Something that I tried to figure out, I just couldn't get a solid number, and I don't know if they'll have this quite yet, but along with the bigger bases, we're just thinking stolen bases to second or third. I want to know if the infield hits have increased as well. Getting down the line quicker and having that base a little bit closer or having it bigger, does that have an impact on the infield hits? Well, again, singles have gone up 1% this year. Doubles have gone up 4% this year. And triples have remained the same. So They've gone up, but only slightly. It's not that we're seeing a lot more people on base like we thought we would see. One thing that's interesting about baseball, you can say their sample size is big. Of all the leagues, you get the most, you get the largest sample size. But still, we're only halfway through the first season with the rule changes. Maybe, maybe we need to wait until next year at this time to see how they've changed. Something else that I'll be looking for in the Tampa Bay Rays pitching coach kind of alluded to this is with the increased frequency of pitches with this pitch clock, a lot of the pitchers might be having a lot more fatigue later on in the year. 
um, Kyle Snyder, who's the pitching coach, is saying, you know, he's these pitchers are going all out every ounce of energy they have on every pitch. And with the pitch clock, you know, shortening their recovery time between pitches, is that going to be an impact later on in the year with these pitchers? Well, what really needs to change to put more players on base is to get rid of so many relief pitchers. And I know Theo Epstein is looking at that. And if they were to make some change, and I don't know what it would be, maybe you can't aren't allowed to carry as many pitchers on a team, but if they would change it so that the starting pitching had to go deeper into the game the way it used to be, then we would start seeing the starting pitching being less successful. When you can put somebody in who's completely fresh and nobody has seen, and he can throw 100 miles an hour, you can get a lot of people out. I think overall, though, these rule changes have made everybody love the game of baseball even more. I think everybody loves the shortened games. Everybody loves the more hits. Everybody loves the more stolen bases. I think overall it's been a great impact for MLB. It has, but I wonder if De La Cruz has been an equally big impact for MLB. I know he has in the Cincinnati area. I mean, MLB can't go a day without posting one of his highlights. I mean, he is just absolutely electric. (laughs) And he's a fun player just to look at. The way he looks, he looks like he's having a good time. And, you know, there, there are less black players in the league right now. So seeing a great black player is also good. Anytime any league can commercialize one of their stars is going to impact the viewership and the excitement all day, every day. And that is what everyone is looking for. Sounds like they might have found one. Well, all in all, good job, Rob Manfred. These rule changes are awesome. We'll take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll play Highly Leveraged, True or False. Parker, what kind of dog food do you want for moose? There's Perina One for $30, Hill Science for $42, or Blue Buffalo for $46. Oh, get Blue Buffalo. I know it's the best because it costs the most. Blue Buffalo Dog Food. It's only dog food, but we make it better by charging you more for it. Welcome back. Parker and I are going to share the microphone for this segment. Let me welcome Smith in. Smith is a special guest tonight who happens to be David's brother. The other thing that's interesting about Smith is that he is a songwriter in Nashville, Tennessee. About all I know about songwriting, I saw in the first two seasons of the television show Nashville. So I don't know how accurate that is. (laughs) Not very. I had a couple of questions for you, Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed that most of the songs you write, you co-write them, and it includes the performer. Why does that happen? Well, I mean, I feel like the music industry has just changed a whole bunch um, from back in the day. You know, b- back in the day, there was just songwriters that, you know, two of them would write and their publisher would pitch them. And that those were the only songs available, you know. Artists didn't even dream of writing their own songs, you know. But now that no one buys records and streaming is all the, you know, the rage, uh, you know, as a songwriter, you don't really get paid as much, you know. And uh, 
from from Spotify or whatever every uh, streaming platform. <laughs> I'm not trying to single out Spotify, but um, uh, so artists, it's beneficial for me as a songwriter, you know, to write with an artist who is also a songwriter because they're going to put it out on Spotify, which the good thing about Spotify and other streaming platforms is that of you don't need a record label necessarily to get your songs heard. So to answer your question for me, like I have a better chance of the song getting recorded by an artist. If I write it with the artist now that has pros and cons, but I can, that's a different question. I I understand. (laughs) You've got a new song that just got released called she's on a roll. And I think the song has got a great hook. It, uh, the lyric is, I'm on a rock and she's on a roll. Kind of has a 38 special vibe in my mind to it. Nice. Who, who, yeah. who did you write that song with? So I wrote that with Drew Parker, you know, the guy who's singing, the artist, and uh, Jordan Walker, who's a staff songwriter is what they call it. Somebody like me who is just, you know, just a songwriter and not an artist. And then um, Jacob uh, Price, who is a producer. Um, we call him Track Guys. And uh, I think this was the first time I had ever written with Jacob since this song. I've written a bunch of songs with him. But he's more of like building the track out as we write, you know, and we're sitting there kind of figuring stuff out. And, you know, we're changing the melody and the chords and he'll build it on the computer or be like, man, it'd be real cool if you do this. And he's also contributing to the, you know, more less lyrically and more on the demo side of the in the production of the song. Well, let me get a little inside baseball. Were all four of you in the same room at the same time? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, Jacob has a studio. It's like on the second floor of this building on Music Row. Um, it's actually a street off Music Row, but I call that whole like four streets right there, Music Row. But uh, it's kind of in an alley, and I think to Jordan's truck, not this while we were writing, but uh, before this, like three of my friends' trucks got broken into at this parking lot right there, <laughs> and their guns were stolen and stuff. It's crazy. And, but it's really not dangerous. I mean, but it's, it's <laughs> for some reason in that dark alley where the parking lot is, it might be a little dangerous. Seems to me you got to get a song out of that. Uh, (laughs) trucks with guns stolen out of them (laughs) it's a huge problem in nashville actually right now all four of us were in the room there um but uh typically like our publisher will book the rights for us so i look at my calendar and it's a different place every day and we usually start at 11 a.m and we stay until we're done let me ask this did somebody walk into that room with the line uh I'm on a rock and she's on a roll. Uh, yes, but it wasn't the first thing they threw out. You know, um, I think I think Drew had it. Um, he, you know, we were all tossing out ideas, and he he threw that out. But then, you know, it's a really cool title. I don't know if that was exactly the title. It might have been just like I'm on the rocks, or you know, something. And we messed with it here in every angle, and um. You know, everything Drew sings kind of sounds magical. That's very cool. How long did it take to write that one? 
that one was pretty quick. Um, uh, but you know, we weren't even supposed to write that day. Uh, our publishers had messed up. And so Jordan was like, Hey, uh, Jacob's supposed to be on this, right? Blah, blah, blah. So that we weren't, the four of us ended up for the first time as an accident. And since then, like I said, we've written a bunch, but, uh, uh, I think that one was a quick one. It was right before, it was like one of the last ones before Christmas break. So we were, you know, uh, once we had that idea, uh, it was probably like an hour and a half, two hours, maybe. Pretty cool. Yeah. I guess one last question about that song, and I'm not sure yeah. you know the answer, but do you know how much you get paid by Spotify every time <laughs> that song plays? <laughs> uh, well, no, I don't know the exact answer, but I haven't. Uh, I still live in a two-bedroom apartment. <laughs> <laughs> You'll make it big someday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cool. Listeners, we're going to put a link to Smith's playlist. You can listen to everything he's written by the stars who perform it. I think you'll enjoy it a lot. Well, before we get to our official game, I've got a little game that I'd like to play, and really it's a challenge for Dave. I'm calling this Smith's Songs The Game. Oh, nice. It's going to test my uh, lyrical knowledge, I believe. What I'm going to do is write, is read a lyric, and Dave is going to guess whether you wrote any part of that lyric. So it's a, a yes or no, and then, Smith, you just tell him if he's right or wrong, and we'll keep score and see how many he gets. All right. Now, I'm assuming you mean of his songs. So these are all his songs, right? So if he actually wrote the lyric. Yes, it would be much easier if I was doing 38 Special because you could just say, no, it was written before he was born. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think this verse would really, really set a nice picture. It is, well, this watercolor sunset's going to fade right into dark. This, this tailgate's going to rust, and this old truck is going to run out of starts. So, Dave, do you think Smith wrote a portion of that lyric. I do. Okay. We're keeping score. Did you write any of that Smith? Yeah, I did. Um, uh, you know, I would say that's technically two lines. Okay. You know, so, so, uh, I, uh, the watercolor sunset was one that I think we all, we threw so many, we knew the syllables we needed a blank, blank sunset or whatever. So we were messing with a bunch of different things. And I think watercolor was came from me, so very uh, one out of one right. Here's the next one, and I really like this line. I heard she's a vegan, and she grew up on the West Coast. I'm gonna say no. Definitely say no. <laughs> Did you write any part of that, Smith? Yeah, I wrote that whole entire line. <laughs> 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 I, I like it a lot. <laughs> yeah, I wrote that with my uh, now sister-in-law. Uh, Jenna Paulette is my uh, sister-in-law as of a month now. So Again, congratulations. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Okay, number three. So right now you are one for one. One right, one wrong. <laughs> I had every Eagles record center console in a stack. When we split up, she still had Desperado, and I never asked for it back. I think you wrote it, Dave. Okay. Okay. So a little backstory <laughs> on this. I'm, I'm, I, don't I don't think you understand how happy I am you brought this one up. 
Smith has somewhat of an aversion to the Eagles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I wrote a paper about the Eagles in college. So we sat down and watched, there's a three-hour documentary on Showtime about the Eagles, and it kind of brought Smith a little more appreciation to them than uh, he originally had. So it's an ongoing joke for, I don't know, almost two decades now. Um, yes, he definitely had something to do with that. <laughs> yeah, he's right. Yeah, I I did. Um, it was actually the real life story was it was about friends, a set of uh, friends DVDs. Uh, I left one of the seasons at a girlfriend's house, but I didn't. That didn't fit in a country song. <laughs> so we also toyed with different things. So, and I said Eagles as a joke because the two guys, two of my best friends, I wrote that song with. Uh, they love the Eagles, and I uh, respect the Eagles. Let me just say, I'm just never going to choose to listen to them <laughs> unless Joe Walsh is on the song. <laughs> okay, two to one. You're doing pretty well, David. Here's the next one. And I think this is, this is, uh, what's the word? This is insightful. Life's kind of funny, but it doesn't always make you laugh. Sometimes a punchline doesn't hit you till you're looking back. For sure. So you say he wrote it. <laughs> I say, I, I, he did. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> um, so I wrote that on a retreat, which is where we kind of booked a cabin. We all were there for a weekend. But anyway, Josh Miller, uh, he just kind of is very good at like, it's like, uh, he's almost like a rapper when you hand him a microphone. He just kind of spits and it rhymes. And he just kind of, laughs kind of funny, man. It doesn't always make you laugh. And he just kind of went off for that. And so I have to give the credit to Josh for that one. Okay. Two to two, Dave. You're only batting, you're only batting 500 right now. I guess if you're batting 500, that's pretty good. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at these games. Here's the next <laughs> this one. Podcast has... <laughs> Girl, I promise I put out that fire, but if I'm being honest, I'm a damn good liar. Is that a Brent song, Smith? Hey, no hands. Uh, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, I'll say no. Did you write it? Uh no, I did not. That was Jeb Gibson. Oh. He had he had that uh title. He's an artist and he's my favorite songwriter too and a friend of mine. Um uh really good friend of mine. But Jeb's anyway, going to be that mad was, that I said it was Brent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, or he'll probably take it as a compliment. Yeah, maybe. Okay, here's the next one. Yeah, the more it turned, the more I learned, no matter what you do, there ain't no I in country, but there's a Y-O-U. Uh, I, I know the story of this song, but I'm not sure I know the exact story of that song. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm, I, don't, I, I don't think you did. Yeah, no, I didn't. Sorry, I said yeah, but I, no, I did not. Right, that one. Uh, Nick Donnelly had that one. I I do remember sitting there at 5 a.m. around a campfire trying to find out a rhyme for learn. More it burn. <laughs> I remember sitting there just being like, I don't care what it says. But um, <laughs> but we did finish it, and I love it. Hardy, don't hate me. Yeah. Okay, there's the last one. 
And I'm going to tell you, this is my favorite line. It's a favorite line I've heard in a song in a long time. <laughs> okay. It's the second part that I like so much. Like a George Strait cassette in a Pontiac, tell them supercuts, let's leave it long in the back. <laughs> that is a great line. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I said it right. Tell them supercuts, let's leave it long in the back. Yeah, yeah. That's it. I'm going to say no to that one, too. Correct. I did not write that one either. Okay. Well, Dave, you did pretty well. Five out of seven. It sounds like you know your brother's music. I guess I'm going to turn it over now to Parker. Parker, why don't you lead him in a game of highly leveraged true or false? All right. Let's do this thing. So this is how the game is going to work. I have eight questions or eight statements and each of you guys are going to have to let me know if this statement is true or false. The kick to this game is you can leverage how confident you are in your answer by leveraging it. One being the least confident and a four being the most confident. So you can leverage it one, two, three, or four. And it'll be one person at a time. So we'll start with Smith first. Um, and once I read the statement, you can tell me, if you want to leverage it, one, two, three, or four. Y'all good? And I can do four every time. You can only I'm do one. it once. No. So I can only do it once. Yep. And there's... And Parker, let him, let him pick so it doesn't sound like it's rigged for anybody. Right. <laughs> so, Smith, <laughs> pick a number between one and eight. Um, seven. Okay. All right, here we go. In 1962... Former MLB catcher mm-hmm. Harry Chitty was traded from the Cleveland Indians to the New York Mets for a player to be named later. After a per- poor performance, Chitty became that player to be named later, making him the first player to ever be traded for himself. <laughs> One, and I'm going to say true. It is true. So you have yes. one point. Okay. It has one point. David, pick a number between one and eight without seven. (laughs) I'll go uh, two. Okay. Number two, yellow, green, red, black, and blue are the five colors that appear in every flag in the world. This is why they were chosen as the colors to represent the Olympic rings. Can you say the colors again? (laughs) <laughs> Yellow, green, red, black, and blue. I wish this podcast had video so people could see David's <laughs> expression when he got this question. <laughs> Imagine the circles, the rings. I know, I know exactly what it is. I was. I'm gonna. I'm gonna leverage one, and I'm gonna say true. It is indeed true. You also have Dang. one point. It is one-to-one. All right. Smith, pick a number between one and eight without two or seven. Let's go four. Number four. All righty. The World Cup has never been won by the host country. Mm. The World Cup has never been won by the host country. I guess I want to say two, false. Two for false. And he is on a roll, folks. That is indeed correct. Woo! Yes. It has happened six times the host country has won it. Wow. I would not have guessed nice. that. Wow. 
Alrighty, so it is. Question: If I if I if I wager and miss it, is it minus? No. Okay, cool, 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 cool. cool. All right, cool. Alrighty. All right, I'm gonna say five. Five. Alrighty, here we go. Willie Mays was the highest paid baseball player for eleven seasons. Willie Mays was the highest paid baseball player for eleven seasons. I'm going to wager two, and I'm going to say false because it's going to be like 10 or 12 seasons. You wager two, and that is incorrect. It is true. Um, And David, I would never do that to you. I wouldn't write a question (laughs) where it's just one off. It would be way off. (laughs) I was thinking there's so many variables in that question. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so the score is one to three. Smith is out front. It is your turn to pick again. You have one, three, um, six, or eight. Let's go one. Okay. Number one. William McGee, the 40th mayor of Pittsburgh, signed a law in 1909 making gold and black the official colors of the city. This is why the Pittsburgh Steelers, Pirates, and Penguins all share the same uniform colors, black and gold. Let's go. I mean, I don't think I'm ever going to be sure. So three, (laughs) true. Three for true. What's your wager? Did you say three? Yeah. That is incorrect. Dang. Yes. All right. That is false. Giving you a shot. Still three to one. (laughs) <laughs> I am very proud of myself. I looked up the mayor in 190, whatever I said, and got the right person and everything, but just made the whole thing about him proclaiming the colors up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You have three oh, or eight, awesome. David. Which one would you like? Three, six, or eight. Sorry. I'm going to go three. Okay. Number three. In 1986, Danny Heap became the first player in a World Series to be the designated hitter with the initials DH. (laughs) So the designated hitter DH with the initials DH for Danny Heap. True or false? Um, I'm going to say three. I'm going to say false. He guesses three. False, which is incorrect. Oh, my gosh. The score is still three to one. Smith in the lead. You need me to miss this, Dave. So you have (laughs) six or eight. Which question or which statement would you like? Six or eight? Eight. Okay. Eight. Babe Ruth was paid an annual salary of $80,000 in 1930 and 1931. That salary was not surpassed until the Yankees paid Joe DiMaggio $100,000 in 1949. True or false? <laughs> um, let's go true for four. True for four? And that is correct. Nice. Uh, Woo! David has now seven. Friday. It's amazing that there were that many years before someone yeah. got paid as much again. I I feel like I remember a headline. I don't remember people, but I remember 
like circumstances or something. And, I remember and, a record and, being breaking, broken. And consider inflation, especially in the 30s when the Depression was going on to, what did you say, 1946? 1949. I mean, wow. Yeah. All right, well, at least give me the last one, number six, and the wager four. All right, number six. On average, soccer players run about 17 miles each throughout the span of one game. True. He's leveraging four for true, and that is incorrect. <laughs> no, no, no. Miles is it? It's like seven. It is seven. Oh, there you go. You added ten to it, Jim. <laughs> so you were way off. <laughs> That's right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't make it eight. That would just seem unfair. I made it a very That's good right. number. So Smith wins with a final score of seven. Nice to one. Ooh, Has anybody there. gotten all of them right? I don't think so. Yeah. I was a guest on a podcast, and I made up one for that podcast, and the podcast host got them all correct. So if you want to go check out the Loyal Littles podcast, I'm, I'm on episode 241, and the host got all of them correct. There you go. <laughs> I consider that yes. I would answer your question yes, Smith. Okay. Well, thank you, Smith, for joining us for this segment. I think we're going to link his – uh, playlist in the um, show notes. Is that correct, JJ? That's correct. Okay. Make sure you guys check him out. Thank you, Smith, for joining us again. We will take a brief break, and when we come back, we'll talk some Tour de France. Parker, do you have change for this Benji? No, but I could run by First Citywide Change Bank and get it for you. First Citywide Change Bank. We can give you change combinations you never even thought of. $100? How about 2,000 nickels? Our business is making change. Welcome back, everybody. We got Kevin joining us today for this segment. We have a proposed change to the Tour de France, and I think JJ is going to lead this one out. What you got in store for us? Well, let me start by saying a little bit about what the Tour de France is. Most Americans know it because Lance Armstrong won it seven times. Since he's uh, admitted to doping, he officially has won it zero times. But in my mind, he still won it seven times. (laughs) It's a 21-stage race that takes place over three weeks. So they do three weeks plus a weekend, and they have two rest days. It's called a Grand Tour, and there's actually two other Grand Tours. There's the Giro, which is the tour of Italy, and there is there's the Welta. Starts with a V, though. It's the tour of Spain. Well, typically a tour de France consists of, you know, as I said a minute ago, it has 21 stages. Typically, they have about six stages that are fairly flat stages that they call sprinter stages. So the sprinters have an opportunity to win those. There's usually two or three time trials. More recently, there have been uh, three time trials. There's usually seven or eight mountain stages. These are stages where the very small men, very light men who are very strong, excel. And that's usually where the Tour de France is won now, is in the mountain stages. And then they have about four stages that are rolling terrain 
and commonly breakaways, get away out in front of the peloton and win. What I'm going to propose is that we remove one of those stages and we replace it with a mountain bike stage. Here's what I propose. We have a mountain bike stage, which is raced as a team time trial. Probably set the length to be about 60K, or as we Americans know it, about 35 miles, something that would take about two hours. The reason I think we should do it as a team time trial is because it's important that if a team leader, somebody who's going for the general classification, were to have a bike failure, he needs to have support vehicles close to him. And of course, the cars can't follow them on a mountain bike trail. So the idea is the entire team, all eight riders, would be riding together. And if the team leader's bike had a flat, broke, or something, he would simply take someone else's bike to finish the time trial. I'm suggesting that as most time trials, the official time is taken at the fifth person that crosses the line. Additionally, because you might have this scenario where somebody's bike breaks and they're unable to finish the stage, unlike normal stages, I think we should simply have a maximum time, say 50% higher than whatever their finish time is. So anyway, what I'm introducing is the idea of a mountain bike stage in the middle of the Tour de France. The, The idea is It's going to generate excitement for the race, and it's going to help bike manufacturers sell bikes. So, Kevin, what do you think? Parker, just give you some more information on on the TDF, right? So they they bike about 2,100 miles in three weeks. Uh, Each stage runs around six hours. They go 120, 150 miles a day on bikes, balls out. Um, like, Like JJ said, I think there's two or three, maybe just two rest days. It's the only sport in the world where you get a haircut during the the event. Nice. From what I've seen from the Tour de France, their motion seems to be always the same. They're in this compact, you know, biking stance, and they're not really changing their. I don't know what the is it a bicycle stroke or whatever. With mountain biking, I mean, they're really using their whole body. My question would be: Would this be an injury type of deal where, you know, they're using these strenuous movements that they're not, their bodies are not used to. Is this going to be causing a problem? Well, let, let me start with the first part of that question. Yes, this would be radically different than what they train for. Most of these guys are pretty good bike handlers and would be pretty good mountain bikers anyway, but it's not what they train for. It is a different activity. They have recently incorporated some, some, they call it like Strada Blanca races. They do like gravel stuff in Italy, white dust, and they do uh, like a Paris-Roubaix stage in the tour. And they all complain because the GC guys, the general classification guys, your, your prime ponies that's going to win the whole race, wreck, get hurt, break a thing, and they're out. And it's like, we don't want to take the whole thing out because we wanted to jump some bumps in northern France. So that's kind of the drawback to that. Well, I don't disagree that the team managers are going to hate this idea. And the riders are probably going to hate this idea. And the truth is, I introduced it right now because the Tour de France is happening right now. 
but it probably makes more sense in one of the other tours, one of the more minor tours. The tour of Spain gets a lot less attention. So the tour of Spain probably be, would be the place to do this because they do gravel section in the tour to Spain or the, the Welta already. So it might make more sense to be introduced there. But again, I don't disagree that the, the riders and the team managers would not like this idea. From my viewing pleasure, watching somebody do a road race is might not be as exciting as like a camera angle in the middle of the woods and somebody jumping a huge jump and somebody passing a guy in the woods and maybe somebody crashing. Those are the type of highlights that a normal guy like me who doesn't watch the Tour de France would see is a crash or these crazy passes. It would be a way to make the sport more fun to watch. I think especially the first several times they did it, it would be the highest watched Tour de France stage because people who are a little bit road cycling fans would really tune in to see how these riders did on the trail. First off, you're kind of looking for blood there. You're looking for a crash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I am. You know, and, and cycling is dangerous enough. Uh, I would argue it's the most dangerous team sport, right? I mean, maybe MMA is more dangerous, but like a guy died last month in the Tour of Swiss. And like you got a guy, his name's Pogacar. I'm not saying it right. Pogacar, Tajay Pogacar. He trains for one year for this race and he hits the wrong bump on the mountain bike, goes over the handlebills, there goes the whole year. I'm going to argue that the mountain bike stage is not the most dangerous stage of the, would not be the most dangerous stage of the Tour de France. The most dangerous stage remains those downhills, those downhills where they can get up to 65, sometimes even a little faster than 65 miles an hour. There are stages where the motorcycles can't keep up with the riders going downhill. And that guy that died in the Tour of Switzerland, that's how he died going downhill. So I don't think that this is more dangerous. Maybe it's slightly more dangerous for a minor injury, but it's not more dangerous for a life-threatening injury. And it's probably not even more dangerous for a tour-ending injury, at least not more dangerous than the Perry-Roubaix cobble sections they do. That's clearly more dangerous than mountain biking. Well, I agree with you on a little bit. Then you have to put in the teams or what, eight or nine nine riders on a team. So you have to have nine bikes and the backup bikes in the woods. I mean, you have to have logistics. They're carrying all that stuff around all France. Again, I'm saying you don't have backup bikes in the woods. That's why it's a team time trial. So you're riding together. So your important riders will get the time because they'll take somebody's bike to finish. And the guy that has to walk out, again, we put a maximum time that you get. So we take care of that problem. Well, we could talk about this forever. And I'm not sure our audience is is as interested in the Tour de France as Kevin and I. Start us off, JJ. Well, you know where I'm headed on this. I've been thinking about this for a couple of years, so I think it's a great idea. I'm going to give it a 10. All right, Kevin, what you got? All right, well, I was going to build up my street cred, street credibility. I bought some I bought some um, props here. This is nice. about half oh, all wow. the bike races I've been in. Good Lord. Okay. Got some more props here. Hang on. I got a – here's Georgia State time trial champion Whoa. three times. It's three years, Parker. Here's a, here's a Tennessee – No big deal. State champion. You know this is an audio uh, podcast that we have. I don't think it has any value to the race, and I think nobody would ever do it. But I'll give it a one. One out of ten. 
I got to find a more sympathetic judge to come on and be my cycling expert. All right. One out of 10. I will give it a eight out of 10. Like Kevin said, I'm out for blood. And I think it'd be a little bit more exciting. If it bleeds, it leads. That's 19 divided by three. So what's that? 6.3. It doesn't make it. We'll take a brief break. And when we come back, we'll, uh, we'll finish them off with some emails. Stay tuned. Parker, you want to play some video games this evening? Sure. Let's pull out the Sega Genesis and let's play some Mortal Kombat 2. Sega Genesis. The more you play with it, the harder it gets. All right. Welcome back, everybody. It's that time of the show where we dig into some emails our listeners have sent us. We've got a couple of good ones to share with you guys. This first one is from The Norseman. He writes, OMG, these podcasts are dangerous. Do not operate a car or heavy machinery when listening to one of them. I listened to one of these dropping a baseball and passed out three times before I ever understood what in the world they were talking about. The fourth time, I made it to that weird trivia game where they get excited in a good-natured rivalry like the 1950s where white people argue before a game of Jeopardy. The fifth time, I think I heard something about football, but then that heavy-set hillbilly monotoned about God only knows what for a solid 10 minutes, and I was gone. Never was able to finish the episode. Best sleep of my life. From the Norseman. I'm glad we can help somebody out. I'm trying to figure out how he, or who he's talking about with this heavy-set hillbilly. Well, it's pretty clear I weigh the most, but I don't know how he knows that. (laughs) Do you think he can tell from our voices? Maybe I have the voice of a fat man. (laughs) I don't think there's anything else to respond to this Norse man. So thank you for writing it in. We appreciate it as always. Our next email is from Thorne from Los Angeles. He or she, I'm not sure how to gender this person, but they write, Parker, you are always saying you would like to test a baseball rule in the AAA or a basketball rule in the G League, but you are frustrated that there is not an opportunity to test a football rule change. That is correct. I propose that the NFL establish week four to be ruled test weekend. The NFL would simply play the regularly scheduled games, which would count towards each team's record, but would introduce several rule changes that are they are considering. This would give a nice 16-game sample size to work to see how the rules work. All teams would be playing, this, playing the same rules during that weekend, so no unfair advantages would be given. When you vote this a full 10, I'll be giving JJ his third defeat. Thorn from Los Angeles. Is there a reason why it would be week four? I don't know. Maybe he's just trying to get away from the very opening of the season. And I guess they probably ought to do this before teams go on buys. I don't know what week they start their buys, but I know it's not the first or second game. I think it's like week eight, right? It's an interesting idea. But also, yeah, I mean, could you not try to institute some sort of testing of the rules during the preseason? 
The reason I don't think that works is because I don't think the teams are playing. They're, yeah. they're not really trying. So to really That's get true. a feel for whether a rule's going to work, you try it, you take it. I mean, it's, it's a pretty good idea. You take one week and you try these rules. It doesn't, it doesn't kill the record. So you're not ruining an entire season if a rule's bad. And you'd really get a taste for what it does before you actually implement it season-wide. Yeah. The thing is, if they were to have like an overtime rule they wanted to test, they would just have to pray that one of those games that weekend went into overtime. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't think, I don't think you get an overtime game every week. It lets teams get into a groove weeks one through three, see what's going on. It is a real game. I mean, it probably does test the rule changes better than preseason or whatnot. And it doesn't affect it will, would not affect the season that much. I think I'm ready to vote. Okay. You want to start us off JJ? Yeah. And I hope I'm not dooming myself because I'm going to give it a 10. I think it's a real good idea. <laughs> David. I will, I will, um, I'll second that. I think it would be very interesting and, What's one game of a season? 100%. Parker, before you rate this, I think you need to remember what you said, that it's Mm -hmm. not going to be able to test an overtime rule, so probably shouldn't give it a 10. Well, that would be giving J.J. his third defeat, no? Yes, it would. (laughs) Well, before you said that, I was going to give it a 6, just because – I think even though in the preseason you can't test out some things or the teams might not be trying, I still think the preseason's a good chance to test out some rules. I would give it a six, but I appreciate the email and it being pointed towards me. So that was fun. So thank you. Thorne from Los Angeles. However, you gave it a six, but we still, that's 26 divided by three, 8.6, I think. So this one goes to the NFL. That is true. Okay. This one will get sent off to Mr. Roger Goodell. That is going to wrap up this week's show. You can use the links in the show notes to reach us. We need your help to make the Competition Committee a community. Please text a few of your friends a recommendation and a link to our show. It's easy. Click the three dots in the upper right corner of your phone. Select Share, Messages, type the name of three friends, and ask them to check out the show. That's all it takes. Thanks for joining us this week and look for our new episodes each Thursday. Supplies!